This is Laura from Alhambra, California, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So let's get started. And like we do every week, I would like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as for those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to the show on. By spreading the word, by recommending California Dreaming in listening groups, and of course, for supporting us on Patreon as well. There are currently 20 exclusive bonuses on Patreon. And for as little as $1, you can gain access to all of those episodes as well. This week, I would like to thank Sydney D., Jessica H., Tracy H., Ann B., Teen S., Aaron S., Vanessa H., Virginia G., and Maggie James, who has just returned to Patreon, so I would like to thank you for your past and present support. I'd also like to thank Felicia S. for raising her contribution to the next level. And if you don't want to join Patreon and you would like to make a one-time donation to help support the production of the show, you can do so through PayPal by using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Thank you again for all of your support. I wanted to also quickly remind you about the novel that I'm narrating entitled A Sickness in Time, by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle, the same authors who brought you the acclaimed sci-fi thriller Seeing by Moonlight, which is also available across all podcast directories. A Sickness in Time is being released as a podcast chapter by chapter, week by week, and it is available on your favorite podcatchers. And if you're listening and you are enjoying and you would like to receive a free autographed copy of the book, and if you have access to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, leave a nice rating and review for A Sickness in Time, send a screenshot to mfthomasauthor at icloud.com along with your mailing information and you will receive your copy. And a big thank you to all of you listening that have taken the time to do that already. Your book reviews have been really, really nice. And I appreciate you taking the time to do that. And I also want to say thank you to Lisa and Julie over at the Women Behind the Veil podcast for giving Fred and his mommy show a shout out, though I'm pretty sure Fred does not need the publicity. And in case you listening, do not follow California Dreaming on social media. Fred is one of my three dogs. 
And the reason he is the most talked about is because he's the neediest and the most likely to misbehave because he's basically a felon. He has staunch supporters, but they just can't handle the truth. The truth being, Fred is guilty as charged. Anyways, the ladies over at the Women Behind the Veil had very nice things to say about Fred over there. I mean, who knew he'd be getting mentions on podcasts, yet here we are. Thank you for mentioning us, and if you would like to listen to a new and unique show where they take a look at fascinating women throughout history, subscribe and listen to the Women Behind the Veil podcast on your favorite podcast directory. The case that we are going to talk about today, I watched a show on investigation discovery or something like that several years ago, and I was reminded of it recently one night while I was lying in bed thinking about, of course, what stories I want to talk about on our show. Lots of stories we talk about, almost all of them, bring about strong emotions in us, a whole range of them too. We feel sad or angry or frustrated and hope that in the end that there's some kind of justice to be had or any sort of silver lining. And it happens when we see a victim turn into a survivor or a survivor finding justice or a tragedy that brings about meaningful change. For our show, there aren't too many cases that we've covered that are left open-ended or unsolved because I like having that silver lining when we reach the end and I can sign off with the feeling that the story is complete. Not always the case though. Sometimes a story breaks our hearts. We start listening. We become invested in it. Some cases consume us for the hour or so that we're listening. Sometimes we might shed a tear. And then sometimes we start questioning why we are so attracted to true crime. It's like diving into a book and becoming immersed. Walking through each case like it's a journey that we're on. And because it was a thing that actually happened someplace, somewhere, to someone, it isn't so abstract. It's real and it's tangible and we just got to experience it and we connected. People sometimes ask in true crime groups that we are members of, what is your pet case? That isn't a question I have an easy answer to. I mean, a killer that scared me as a child was Richard Ramirez. A killer that I read all I could about when I was a teenager and into my early 20s, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer. But now each week I obsess over a different story. It's like my pet case changes every week. And like the story we're going to talk about today, it just popped into my head and I had texted it to myself in the middle of the night so I wouldn't forget. I remembered the feelings that I had when I got to the end of the story on investigation discovery. It was a combination of heartbreak and anger and senselessness. When it was over, I thought about the person behind this crime. And it just had me wondering why this man couldn't just leave things that were well enough alone. When you're on the outside looking in at other people and their relationships, 
All you can see is what they're willing to show you. So you develop your own opinions, your own perspectives based on your observations. Like so many relationships between husbands, wives, girlfriends, boyfriends, partners, things aren't always as they appear. For example, I look to Lacey Rocha and her killer when I think of this. They had their friends and family thinking their relationship was a storybook romance. Lacey wasn't going around telling her friends and co-workers that her husband was acting distant and uninterested when it came to the approaching arrival of their son, Connor, right? I mean, she confided in her mom, but everywhere else, Lacey was putting on a brave face. So when she and Connor ended up dead, washed up in San Francisco Bay, everyone seemed so shocked when all of a sudden, wait, her husband was having an affair? They were so happy. They were so cute. They were so perfect. Yeah, no, they weren't. That's just what they showed you. But it still had us collectively scratching our heads. Why couldn't Lacey's killer just leave well enough alone? He had a wife that loved him, despite the fact that he was mediocre at mostly everything he pursued in life. She was the mother of his unborn child. Her dreams of motherhood were finally coming to fruition. She would have doted on their child. They had their home, their careers, a budding family. Why did he have to up and do this? There isn't one simple answer to that question, but still, even all these years later, when I think about this case, I just shake my head and wonder why, why was this the answer to what was going on in his pathetic little mind? And I had the same questions as I arrived at the end of this story when I watched it on TV. I have the same nagging questions and I always will. Why? Why did this have to happen this way? Why couldn't this man just leave well enough alone? How is it that someone gets to a place where murder is the solution to a problem? Greed, jealousy, passion. Yeah, those motives on some level make sense to us. We are human, we are emotional beings, and we react. And sometimes the worst can happen. But sometimes we find a case where even those factors don't even seem to play into the whys and what fors. It's something deeper, something we on the outside can't perceive. There is something unseen and intangible going on in the heart and mind of a person who decides that the answer is murder. Because they couldn't seem to see or accept how good they really had it. And this story is going to have you asking those same questions. Why? In today's 87th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the mystery on the 91. The 91 Freeway. You know, we here in California call our freeways by their numbers. The 91 is actually State Route 91. The 405 is Interstate 405, and so on. 
But we in California, we famously ditch the state route and the interstate part of their titles and just call them the 91 and the 405. Freeways are our lifelines in this state, and it is not uncommon to take several freeways to get anywhere in Southern California. For example, I could take the streets to get to my mom's house, or I could take three different freeways. I've also taken the freeway, gotten on, driven one block, and gotten off because the entrances are that frequent and close together. The freeways are congested, but if you're lucky, traffic can flow pretty smoothly, so long as there's no accident or construction ahead. And there have been times where traffic needed to be stopped or diverted off the freeway altogether. I've been stuck on freeways because of accidents, fires, and one time a bank robbery suspect foot bailed and ran across the freeway, causing an hours-long shutdown in both directions. I was recently talking about an occasion relating to last week's story about driving through the desert off-road because a CHP officer had been killed in a traffic accident on the 15 heading north towards Las Vegas. Everyone was parked on the freeway and there were a few people getting out of their cars discussing the incident. And then there began a procession of vehicles headed towards a dirt path off-road through the desert to get around the accident and then head back towards the freeway. I decided to join that and it was rough. I've reversed off entrance ramps when it became apparent something had the freeway at a standstill somewhere up ahead. And I've had occasions where I just sat in traffic and waited. Anything minor or major can bring the flow of traffic to a dead stop and it's just a thing you have to accept and get used to if driving on the freeway in Southern California is a regular thing for you. There is a stretch of freeway that bisects Southern California, east and west, State Route 91. It's almost 60 miles or 95 kilometers long, and the western end of it being in the city of Gardena, just south of South Los Angeles, and the eastern end of it being in Riverside. It's the closest freeway to where I lived when I grew up. My dad always said, when you buy a house, make sure it's near a freeway, and he wasn't wrong. It was really easy coming and going. The freeway exited right near our neighborhood. So, a few more miles east along this freeway, you will cut through the city of Anaheim. And we talked about Anaheim last week in our story about the eight friends in the desert. They were all residents of the city. But where the 91 touches Anaheim, it is literally the northernmost tip of the city. As a matter of fact, if you're on the 91 heading east, you're basically on the Anaheim side. And if you're on the 91 headed west, then you're on the Fullerton side. When we talk about Anaheim, our minds immediately go to Disneyland or California Adventure, the Angels, the Big A, the Ducks at the Pond, or it's now called the Honda Center. This part of Anaheim is not quite in that particular area of the city. Our story takes place right along the stretch of the freeway in Anaheim, which is a bit removed from the happiest place on earth. On January 17, 1998, a shooting took place right on the freeway. And it wasn't exactly a drive-by. It, oddly enough, appeared to be a robbery. Sounds like a bizarre place to try to commit an armed robbery, doesn't it? 
I mean, if you walk into a liquor store or some kind of other business, you assume the place is going to have a cash register with money and the robber has his or her gun or another weapon or maybe they're just pretending to have a weapon and they make their demands and they leave. How is somebody going to try to rob someone on the freeway? There are thousands of cars that flow through the intricate highway system in California. An armed robber isn't just driving around looking for somebody to rob, because chances are you're not going to find very much, if anything, beyond what the person driving or their passengers might possibly have in their wallets or pocketbooks. Maybe some jewelry, and back in 98, that would be about it. Not likely is there going to be a cell phone or a laptop, definitely no iPads. A robber would be taking a big chance to come up empty-handed trying to rob a driver on the freeway. Unless that driver was targeted because of some knowledge the robber might have about what is inside that vehicle. So the shooting that occurred on that day in January of 98... By all appearances, it seemed to be a case of a robbery gone terribly wrong. And this is a crime that took place in a scene that would be very fluid. Traffic is flowing, a shooting takes place, and a killer is gone. A drive-by. Seems like a good way to commit the perfect murder, doesn't it? Two really famous high-profile drive-bys involving Tupac Shakur and Notorious B.I.G. continue to remain unsolved to this day. This case, this shooting on the 91, it too would grow cold. Cold cases today, they're getting solved one by one because of advances in DNA technology. It seems like every other week another case gets checked into the solved column because science finally caught up. Now this isn't likely going to be the way cases like Tupac and Biggie are going to be solved. In a drive-by shooting, the likelihood of forensic evidence like DNA or blood or fibers, things such as these that link killers to crime scenes, those things aren't usually left behind because of the nature of the crime. It is not an up-close-and-personal thing. It is a crime that took place with a certain amount of space and distance between victim and killer. Linking anyone to an unsolved drive-by shooting that took place in a very public area is going to have to come about in ways other than forensics and DNA. You're going to need eyewitnesses or a confession, or if an investigator is lucky, a ballistics match to a weapon. Otherwise, drive-by shootings could very easily go cold and stay cold. I was in the jury pool of a murder case that involved a drive-by murder. Three young men with gang affiliations were being tried together, charged with killing a 17-year-old in a drive-by shooting. I ended up being excused after three days of questioning as there were like 300 prospective jurors called up so I didn't end up on the case. But the one thing the prosecutor kept asking over and over again of the jurors 
as if they understood that circumstantial evidence was just as valid and effective in proving a case as forensic evidence was. It's because there was nothing to physically tie the three defendants to the murder. Like I said, I didn't get seated for the trial, but I did follow it in the news afterwards and they were convicted. And I'll try to remember to post a link to the article once this episode goes live. And my point is, drive-bys are tricky. And the shooting that took place on the 91 that night of January 17, 1998 was no exception. And it did go cold. There was no DNA. There was very little, actually, when it came to evidence. Or so investigators thought at first. They had the pieces of the puzzle. It was just going to take quite some time to figure out how all of the pieces fit together. A little bit after 11 p.m. on that night, a call was made to 911 that shots had been fired near the entrance ramp of the 91 freeway in Anaheim. Police rushed to the location, and when they arrived, they found a very violent and bloody scene. The victim, 40-year-old Elizabeth Begarin, a wife and stepmother, was lying on the pavement of the freeway beside her family's SUV in a pool of her own blood. She had suffered two gunshot wounds, one to her chest, one to her head. And what immediately struck responding officers, what shook them to the core, was what they found lying on the ground next to Elizabeth. Her badge. She was, in fact, a State of California corrections officer. One of their own. Not too far off from where she lay stood her husband, Nuzio Bagarin and his daughter, Angelica, only 10 years old, holding close to her dad. And we can only imagine, terrified at what she had just witnessed happen to her stepmother. Elizabeth was taken to the hospital by ambulance, doing everything that they could to save her life, but the efforts were fruitless. The wounds that she suffered were fatal. Elizabeth Begarin was dead at the age of 40. The freeway, of course, was shut down for hours following the shooting. The 91 had become a scene of a homicide and the investigation needed to take place and it needed to be thorough. Who knows what kind of evidence could have been blown away by vehicles zooming by. The investigation began by taking a look at who Elizabeth Begarin was in life. She and her husband, Nuzio, they actually hadn't been married for very long at the time of her death. As a matter of fact, they had dated years and years ago. But whatever happened, the timing of it all, life took them in different directions. But then life circled them back to one another. By the time Elizabeth began her relationship with Nuzio Anu, she had just turned 40. She hadn't gotten married She never had any children. She was getting to that point in life where people might begin to think that the biological clock is ticking. Maybe it was the onset of a midlife crisis. But it seemed as though Elizabeth was starting to think that if she didn't find a life partner soon, she was going to grow old and alone. 
She was interested in dating, looking for a serious relationship that would eventually lead to marriage. And then, at some point, Nuzio reappeared. And just six months prior to Elizabeth's violent death on the 91, she and Nuzio tied the knot. They ran off to Vegas for a quickie wedding, and in the blink of an eye, whatever worries of a midlife crisis that had been looming over Elizabeth's life seemingly evaporated. It was an instant family, a husband and a 10-year-old stepdaughter. And just as quickly, it was gone. Elizabeth having been cut down essentially now in the prime of her life, just when things were finally looking up for her. Maybe. Investigators treaded lightly in those first few moments after arriving at the scene when they approached Nuzio to try and ask him about the moments leading up to the shooting. He was understandably distraught. What happened? What was going on leading up to this tragedy? How did their day unfold? culminating in this violent confrontation on the 91. Nuzio explained what they had spent the day doing. They had gone shopping earlier at a mall in the city of Burbank, California, which is more than 35 miles or 56 kilometers away from Anaheim. And that doesn't seem far, but the drive in Southern California traffic could take more than an hour and a half to go from Burbank to Anaheim. So they were at this mall in Burbank, and Nuzio provided investigators with what could have been the first clue as to what may have been the motive behind all of this. Nuzio said that while they were at the mall, he gave Elizabeth $5,000 in cash, and he made no attempts at hiding the fact that he was handing his wife this large amount of money in full view of prying eyes of any one of the mall goers milling around them. He gave it to her and she slipped the money into her purse. Now, when I first heard that Nuzio shared this information at the onset of the investigation, I was immediately like, wait, what? You did what? You gave her how much and where? Does it sound weird to you? I don't know. I don't walk around with $5,000 in my purse. But if I did... I probably wouldn't want anyone noticing that I did. I would be careful, and I would make sure the people that were with me were careful as well. I am very protective of my purse everywhere that I go. Even though a purse snatcher would be disappointed to find only a few coins and maybe some lint in my wallet. Even so, we have our bank cards, our IDs, our phones, our car keys. Yeah, it would be a nightmare to have my purse lost. And it's not difficult for someone to quickly snatch something valuable and make a quick run for it and getting lost in a crowd. I've seen it happen several times at the mall, and I've seen it happen in a small business. One time I was in one of my favorite Chinese restaurants, and they have on the counter boxes of candy bars and their tip jar. And just as we were leaving and throwing away our trash, this kid... And I think maybe even the other guy that was with him could have been his dad because he was older. They casually walked into the restaurant, snatched the tip jar and the boxes of candy bars and darted right out the door. And I watched them as they ran across the street and disappeared into a neighborhood. 
so I'm always hanging on to my prayers tightly. Nuzio floated the idea that perhaps someone noticed him and his wife exchanging this money at the mall. And he remembered that as they were leaving, he and his wife noticed a group of what he described as gang members staring at them. They found it a little troubling, but they carried on, getting into their vehicle and heading out. They got onto the freeway and began traveling south. They got up the freeway someplace in downtown Los Angeles to fill up at a gas station. It was there, according to Angelica, she took notice of something odd. She felt like they were being watched and followed. She thought she had seen some men watching her and her mom while they were at a store in the mall. And then she thought they were the same men who were watching them as they left the mall as well. And now it looked as though those same exact individuals were now watching them at this gas station in downtown L.A. As they were pumping gas, Angelica saw who she thought were the same gang members driving around the gas station where they had stopped, kind of circling and staring. She saw them go by more than once during the time that they were getting gas. But the family brushed aside their concerns. They got back in their car and on the freeway and began heading towards Anaheim. What they were headed to do, I can't be sure. So as they were driving, Nuzio said that he noticed they were being followed. Investigators believe that Elizabeth also took notice of a vehicle that seemed to be following them. And this would become an important detail a little bit later on in the investigation. Remember, Elizabeth is a corrections officer. She, of course, has her own intrinsic predispositions and instincts kicking in as well. And she quickly put it together in her own mind that if these were the same guys from the mall, if they just so happened to see Nuzio hand her that $5,000 in cash, well then, yeah, this is troubling. Nuzio, behind the wheel, began to make some moves to determine whether or not this vehicle behind them was in fact tailing them. He made a number of evasive moves and turns. He got off the freeway. He got back on and off again. The suspected vehicle followed suit, turn for turn. He accelerated, then slowed. He turned, accelerated again, slowed again. And the vehicle behind them stuck to the dance. By then, Elizabeth was in full officer mode. She's watching and she's worried. Nuzio, he said, was getting desperate. By then, fearful for the safety of his family and himself, he made another desperate attempt to get off the freeway and on again. But the vehicle was unrelenting, continuing to stalk them no matter which direction Nuzio took in his fruitless efforts to shake them. Finally, the vehicle telling them had had enough. The driver floored it, sped past the vehicle's SUV, cut Nuzio off, abruptly slowed down, forcing him out of traffic lanes and onto the shoulder. They were cornered. Nuzio immediately turned his attention to Angelica, wanting to get her out of harm's way. I am not clear as to whether he exited the vehicle through the driver's side door 
or if he scrambled over the seats to get back in. But whichever way he went, he pulled Angelica out the rear door of the SUV and took cover with her behind the vehicle. And it seems as though this is where he stayed. So let's stop here and ponder some questions about the scenario up to this point. What would we have done if we were in this situation? Most of us are probably thinking we would not have stopped on the freeway, right? It's hard to say just how trapped Nuzio was when that vehicle cut them off and forced them onto the shoulder. I personally don't think I would have had a problem trying to speed off, even if it meant making contact with their vehicle. And this is 11 o'clock at night, so there is traffic going, but it's not going to be heavy like it would normally be earlier in the day. So pulling past and speeding off is probably not going to be all that difficult to do. So with that being said, the stopping and the pulling over bothers me. And the fact that they did not try to pull into some place where they would have gotten help or at least a place where there were more witnesses and people. I know it's late, but there are tons of places that are open all the time. Gas stations, liquor stores. This is also near a very busy college town. Not too far from the freeway exit where all of this took place are college hangouts, restaurants, bars. And that also means police are patrolling these areas as well. And I kind of have a funny story. Well, it wasn't funny at the time, but looking back on it now as my older, wiser self, I laugh at the stupidity of it. Okay, so I want to say this was like 1996. And I just so happened to be driving in Anaheim to pick up some of my friends. And it was like after 10 p.m. And we were going to go to a bar or a club or something like that. I was about 21. As I was driving, I was by myself and I hadn't picked up my friends yet. I was slowing down for a red light when I was suddenly rear-ended, like really hard. The vehicle that hit me pulled up alongside me. And they were driving maybe like a late 80s Camaro or a Firebird, something like that. And I could see two guys in the front. And they looked me right in the eye and then they took off. And I was like, oh, no, they didn't. And I was driving a Honda Civic. It was a manual transmission. So I was able to pick up speeds pretty fast, too. So there I went right after them. What the hell was I doing chasing these guys? Well, my intentions were to try and get a license plate number just so maybe I could file a police report or something later on. I didn't know. But as I got closer to the car and mind you, we are racing through the streets of Anaheim after 10 o'clock at night and we were getting close to 80 miles or 128 kilometers per hour. And that's when I noticed a problem. Their car had one of those license plates on the back that flipped down to expose the gas cap. And remember when that used to be a thing? Yeah, so I couldn't get the license plate number because it was down. So we just kept racing. I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. Most likely I was going to back off and give up. I mean, what could I do, right? Well, just as I was about to let it go, we were pulled over by the Anaheim Police Gang Unit. 
we were suddenly surrounded by a bunch of squad cars and I jumped out of my car and I pointed at them and I yelled that these assholes just rear-ended my car and took off. And I was all dressed to go to the club too, so you can just imagine this scene on the street, right? Well, as it turned out, these guys had been drinking and they were unlicensed and uninsured, so they were taken into custody. I did end up going with my friends anyway. The damage to my car was minimal as they had hit my rear bumper just in the right spot where it kind of cracked and it didn't cave in or bash in my trunk. But I was in a bad mood for the rest of the night, pretty much. So kids, if you're listening, don't do what I did. And today, I wouldn't do what I did. But anyway, back to our scene on the 91 with Nuzio and Elizabeth. I would not have allowed myself to be forced off the freeway like that. I may not have had my wits about me. I might have been panicked or whatever, but I definitely would have sped off or at least I would have tried to. Nuzio, though, he pulled over. Then he grabbed Angelica and took cover behind their vehicle. Was this something that we would have done? Maybe. She's his daughter and parental instincts kick in, right? Nuzio and Elizabeth had only been married for six months. At this particular moment, it seems he went into dad mode and Elizabeth, well, she went into corrections officer mode. So I don't think we can fault anyone for that. But Elizabeth, she was only armed with her badge. She didn't have a weapon with her. With her husband, as safe as he could be with Angelica behind the vehicle, she decided to use her badge to identify herself as an officer and confront these men with the hopes that the badge would be enough for these guys who, again, appeared to be the same gang members that they had seen in the mall, in the parking lot, and at the gas station, would be thwarted by her being an officer. And that was her plan to identify herself as an officer and hope that they'd take off running. But her plan didn't work. They were not deterred when she flashed her badge. One of the men approached and took Elizabeth's purse. Then, according to Nuzio, these guys quickly got back into their vehicle and sped off. Then just in a matter of seconds, a van passing by the scene noticed something was amiss and pulled over. Nuzio brought Angelica over to the van. The driver immediately saw Elizabeth down on the ground, bleeding. Not everyone in 1998 had a phone, but luckily this driver did and dialed 911. When officers arrived at the scene, they noticed Elizabeth's badge right away. It was lying on the ground next to her. They knew that they were investigating the murder of a fellow officer and being that this took place on the freeway complicated things. The scene was secured as quickly as possible. All traffic stopped and diverted off. Officers scoured the freeway looking for potential evidence. The first thing being Elizabeth's badge. Could her having been a corrections officer have something to do with this? Yeah, it's possible. You know, working in jail, they run across lots of unsavory characters. Maybe an inmate at one time or another had taken issue with Elizabeth and was out now. Could someone have had a reason to want to seek revenge for something that happened in jail? 
To make things even more compelling, the fact that Elizabeth had been assigned to a special investigations unit called the Security Squad. They are an elite group of corrections officers who are tasked with dealing with some of the worst, most violent inmates within the California Department of Corrections. So the list of potential individuals who may have had a bone to pick with Elizabeth was extensive. They were going to have their hands full looking into this in the years Elizabeth worked for the Department of Corrections. There was the potential for her to have crossed paths with thousands of inmates, many of whom who can now very well be former inmates. If that were the case, then this would not be a simple case of a random robbery and shooting. Then, investigators received a tantalizing bit of information from the driver who phoned 911. As they were making the call, the driver heard 10-year-old Angelica say that her mom wrote down the license plate. What? She wrote down the license plate number of the car following them? So as Nuzio was erratically driving, attempting to shake this person following them, at some point during all of this, Elizabeth had the wherewithal to make note of the vehicle's license plate. Of course she did. She's an officer. She could take that information into work with her the next time she was there, input that number into the system, and figure out exactly who the hell this person is that's been following them, literally, from one end of the Southland to the other. That's a huge, huge vital bit of information. But a search of the Begarin family SUV turned up no such piece of paper. Nothing with a license plate number written down on it. Now, dreamers, this part of the story just gives me chills every time I read or think about it. Officers, though they did not find the piece of paper that the license plate number Angelica said that her mom had written down inside the SUV, they didn't give up hope that they might find it. If it was inside Elizabeth's purse, then they'd be out of luck. That was long gone. But still, they had the freeway shut down, Traffic choked off for a good distance in both directions, so they took to looking all along the freeway lanes and the shoulder. And incredibly, one of the officers, maybe more than one of them, saw some little bits of paper strewn about the shoulder of the freeway. Tiny pieces. Dreamers, seriously, I don't know what the freeway shoulders look like where you all live, but along here, it can be quite chaotic. There's often lots of litter and debris. There's also plants and trees retaining walls with cars flying by 24-7. I mean, there's stuff flying around all the time that ends up on the shoulders. Once in a while, the shoulder is clear. It's either paved or it's just dirt especially near entrance and exit ramps. But for these bits of paper to have stood out to these officers just blows my mind. So the officers picked up the tiny torn bits, collected them, and brought them over to one of their squad cars. They gathered around and placed them on the hood and puzzle pieced them together. 
And right there before their eyes, a license plate number appeared in Elizabeth's own handwriting. And she left behind one more clue for the officers. Also written on this piece of paper were the words, light blue. And there it was. Elizabeth herself, in her death, handed investigators the first break in this case, and it was a big one. It would be a while before the investigation would take these officers to the doorstep of the killer. But she did indeed name her own killer when she jotted down the license plate and the description of that car. And for whatever reason in the world, of the very few things that 10-year-old Angelica would ever have to say to anyone about this case, she managed to say it in that moment that her mom wrote down the license plate number. And for that driver who happened upon this violent scene, who was on the phone with 911, at this time with cars still flying by, in all of this confusion and fear and stress and pandemonium, actually heard Angelica say it and knew enough to remember to remind the officers of it and that those officers cared enough to take the time to spot those pieces of paper on the ground and to find all of them as who knows how far they could have floated away with a quick breeze. I just can't tell you how incredible those moments in the investigation into the murder of Elizabeth Begarin really are. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Remember those pieces of paper, dreamers. Remember that license plate. Because there's still the question of not only who does this license plate and light blue car belong to, but who the heck took the time to tear it up? toss it onto the side of the freeway, hoping it would just blow away and disappear into the night. Somebody did not want that information to be found, and only three people knew about it, and one of them was dead. One of them wanted 911 to know that her mom wrote it down, and the other one was Nuzio. The assailants obviously wouldn't have known about the piece of paper, much less would they have had the time to find it and tear it up. So, where does that leave us? Well, it was an important piece of evidence, but it wouldn't really help until some years down the road. Elizabeth's murder made headlines in the local news. It was reported on TV and in the newspapers. The fact that she was a corrections officer and this was seemingly committed by some gang members, this story shook the residents of Orange County. Something seemingly so random, something so violent on a freeway almost everyone who drives in Southern California uses. When investigators initially spoke to Angelica, she told them three Tolos did this and they robbed her mom. Remember we talked about the usage of the term Cholo recently, back in our episode involving the murder of Enos Cosby. I explained that Cholo was slang for Hispanic gang members. Orange County was and continues to contend with street gang activity, with mostly Hispanic and Asian gangs, but also a spattering of Bloods, Crips, 
white gangs and Pacific Island gangs as well. And in the late 90s, gang violence was the most prevalent of crimes reported within the county. And the murder of Elizabeth on the 91, having believed to be gang-related, it brought about a statement at a press conference from the governor of California at the time, Pete Wilson. He said, in part, The senseless killing could have been stopped. We need to go after these gang members that are crawling all over our streets. And as I've mentioned, freeways are a lifeline for Californians. They are such an essential part of our everyday lives, no matter how long or short your commute may be. And for this to have occurred on one of our freeways, I mean, the randomness of it elicited a real fear. It could have been any one of the millions and millions of people who take the freeways each and every day. The governor announced a $50,000 reward leading to the arrest and conviction of the people responsible for this. It's no secret that gang crimes are notoriously difficult to investigate due to the real fear of speaking up, snitching, rolling over. Nobody wants to talk to cops. So the reward has to be enough to get someone with information talking. But nobody would come forward. And like many cases that send fear through the community, the pressure was on for this to be solved quickly. There's this random killer out there shooting people on freeways. This is a nightmare. But no one that was on the freeway that night, nobody who happened by when all of this went down, called in any tips. Not a one. But they still had that bit of information Elizabeth herself jotted down. The license plate of that car that was following them. Investigators put that information into the system and it belonged to a Buick Regal, light blue in color. And its owner? Somebody by the name of Jose Sandoval. He lived in the southeastern area of Los Angeles And he was indeed a known gang member with an extensive criminal history. And he happened to be on parole at the time of the killing for a particularly violent crime. So detectives headed out that way and brought Sandoval in for questioning very shortly after Elizabeth's murder. He denied being on the freeway that night. He denied being in Anaheim. He denied being anywhere near Orange County. So how is it his license plate ended up on that piece of paper along with an exact description of his sedan? He has no idea. Okay, well, where was he the night of January 17th, 1998 if he wasn't driving his Buick on the 91? He was with his cousin, Guillermo Espinoza. They were hanging out with a few other family members and when questioned, Espinoza corroborated Sandoval's alibi, as did several other relatives. Sandoval was with them that night. His car was confiscated, searched, but turned up nothing incriminating, nothing to link him to the crime. So despite the fact that Elizabeth herself pointed to his vehicle being the one that followed them and ran them off the road, They had nothing that definitively put Sandoval behind the wheel driving it. 
So next, investigators turned to a laundry list of potential suspects. Gang members who had been locked up at the prison where Elizabeth was assigned. She could have very well caused someone to become quite angry with her at the prison. Someone who decided that when they got out, to seek some revenge. Or maybe someone still behind bars could have ordered the killing. Did she do something that caused someone to get in trouble at the prison? Did she cause any kind of inside business to be shut down or through something she saw and reported cause a disruption in whatever activities the inmates were involved in? Investigators looked and looked, but there wasn't anything that jumped out at them. Elizabeth didn't seem to have made any enemies amongst the inmates at all. There just was nothing. So next, detectives wanted to speak to Nuzio. They wanted to try to get as many details about the actual shooting, the people that did this, as they knew he and Angelica saw these men over the course of that afternoon and evening in as many as three different places. They asked him to come to the police station two days after the murder. They knew he was grieving, but this would be the optimal time for him to talk and hopefully recall details that might very well fade over time. Nuzio agreed to come down, and he was cordial, speaking openly and was cooperative at first. Detectives asked him about his marriage to Elizabeth. Remember, they'd only been married for six months. Everything was great. They were happily married, newlyweds. There was no problem at all, according to Nuzio. But as the interview wore on, Nuzio became increasingly impatient and soon he was becoming upset. It was clear to detectives that he was becoming more and more agitated as they went along, so they decided to maybe take a break from speaking to him. Could they talk to Angelica? She might have something important come to mind that could assist them in this investigation. Absolutely not. Nuzio flat out refused to allow investigators to speak to his daughter. He claimed she had already been traumatized enough and he wasn't going to allow for it to be compounded. They tried to explain to Nuzio that that wouldn't be the case. She was 10, more than capable of talking about the incident meaningfully and reliably. After all, she had been the one that mentioned her mom wrote down the license plate of that vehicle. That was a huge detail that may have slipped by if not for her. What other nuggets of valuable information could possibly flicker into her memory if they could only speak to her? They had people designated specifically for dealing with young children, professionals who are experts at eliciting information in a way that will not worsen the trauma, but rather can do the exact opposite in helping them sort through the trauma, assist them in dealing with this experience that they've suffered through. But nope, not his daughter. No way they were not going to be allowed to speak to her. And that was that. Okay, dreamers, because of time constraints over the Easter holiday weekend, I am going to have to end this episode here for right now. 
The investigation into the story is so fascinating, and I would normally squeeze it all into one long episode, but I am running short on time. But the good news is, is that you are not going to have to wait an entire week for the second part of this case to drop into your feeds. I will have part two ready for you within a day or two following our normal Tuesday morning schedule. I just need a little bit more time to record the remaining part of the story. So don't worry, you will only have to wait at most a couple of days. And with that, we will bring this 87th episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases that we cover, as well as current true crime stories, other news and events, TV shows that we enjoy, documentaries, books, Whatever you find that you would like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am very proud to be a part of an amazing group of shows and talented hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. There you will find links to all of our shows and episodes, our merchandise store, our blog, Or if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, give us some comments and feedback, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Don't forget to check out A Sickness in Time. Leave that rating and review on Apple Podcasts for your free autographed copy of the book. The email information will be listed in the show notes of this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. Keep your eyes peeled for part two of the tale of the mystery on the 91. I am your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. Mens rea is the legal principle of criminal intent. It means literally the guilty mind. Join me, Sinead, every fortnight to discuss Ireland and the UK's most heinous crimes and the court cases that followed. Do you want to know more about a kink killing in Dublin in 2012? Or serial killers in Scotland? Whatever your guilty pleasure, you'll find it and all the details with me. Find Mens Rea wherever you get your podcasts.